We've got a live one for you this week, a four-way interview with some of the creative team behind the fall of the House of Sunshine. All that's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Last week, we played the first episode of Season 2 of Fall of the House of Sunshine, that breathless, madcap audio drama musical, and this week, we're going to talk about some of the work that went into it. Series writer Jonathan Goldberg, composer and lyricist Matt Roy Berger, and audio director Marcus Begala joined me for a wacky, wide-ranging discussion of their creative process and influences. We had a magnificent time. And Marcus, though he was initially stuck on the subway, managed very ably to join us mid-interview, picking up the thread extraordinarily smoothly. It was really impressive, I thought. I was very pleased with how this interview went, and I hope you like it too. Let's take a listen as I chat with Matt and Jonathan as we await Marcus's arrival. Hello, John. Hello, Matt. Hello, David. Hello. Hello. Uh, so Marcus will be joining us later. He is stuck on the train. Uh, thanks, Governor Cuomo. <laughs> um, so we'll, I, have, I have questions for him, but I also have questions for the two of you. So first of all, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It is a pleasure to talk Thank to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So the two of you both attended the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. I was going to ask, is that how you met? But before we started recording, I was telling you about Rocco the Mole, friend of the show, my puppet, who's right up there in the closet above me. And I asked, you know, have, have either of you ever worked on anything puppet-related? Um, and Matt, you said that that was how the two of you first collaborated. Can you expand? What, what was this puppet thing? How did you first start working together? How'd you meet? Uh, well, the, I mean, literally the very first thing I ever saw that I became aware of Jonathan was because he did a 10-minute serialized play that was very had the same name and was very similar to the podcast. So it was already kind of leaning towards being about puppets. So like a year or two later, when I was working with a mutual friend and I, we were talking about doing a show, kind of like a Wonder Shows-esque show about my band, I, he, I was like, well, who could we work with as a writer? And he recommended Jonathan. So Jonathan wrote The Adventures of Teen Girl Scientist Monthly in the haunted mansion of Uncle Grunkle. Is that the right title, Jonathan? I think that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it was... It was a very strange show about the band's uncle dying and leaving us his. We had to stay for one night in his mansion. That was one year, I think. One year, yeah. One one year in his mansion, and then uh, <laughs> us us meeting all the the puppet denizens who live there. So yeah, we work uh, hardcore with puppets. I mean, we're we're pretty deep in the puppet game. Jonathan, can you tell me what the original Fall of the House of Sunshine was like before? What I assume it was not originally a musical before you brought on Matt. Uh, it had some music in it, but it was, um, there is, um, it's pretty shitty music. <laughs> well, it was just, I think stolen music that they just changed some of the lyrics to. I don't remember exactly. That was years ago. Uh, they had this thing. I think they still do at the flea theater in downtown, uh, Manhattan called serials, which was a late night short play thing where it was about five people would write a 10 minute sort of to be continued thing. And the audience would vote on which two of the five they wanted to see more of and those two would go on and the others would just be tossed into the ash bin of history <laughs> and uh so i did that and um it was sort of it was a much looser sort of version it was very like rough and ready because it was again weekly so it was just sort of throwing it together and we lasted two weeks we were very crazy and weird and it was basically the performances were at 
midnight and 1 a.m. So it was sort of a late night sort of crazy thing. And, and I was part of the first week of doing that. So I think none of us knew what we were doing. And it was about a children's show host who was murdered. But it, was, it wasn't really toothpaste yet. It was just sort of more generic. And then when Matt and I were talking about projects, we at one point were like, well, what about a web series? And then I was like, that's probably too hard. But let's do a podcast. <laughs> um, but I was like, maybe a podcast. That could be cool. Because I had a friend who was a, a writer on Limetown. And that was, uh, of course, a very popular show. I think you know some of the people on Limetown also, Matt. Name dropping already. Jesus. Yeah. We're like five minutes in. <laughs> well, I was like, they have like a million listeners. So we'll just make a podcast and we'll have a million listeners. And the math worked out for us. And that's why we're here today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, John, I saw this on the website bio. What's what's this about Warren G. Harding and a walrus? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, when Matt and I had done the, the, the Teen Girl show... And then um, we both sort of went our separate ways for a little while. And then I was doing a Fringe Festival in Minnesota with a play I had written. And I'm trying to work on, with my plays, getting all the different presidents in them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Thomas Jefferson has also John Adams and James Madison and Monroe in there also. And so this one is about the end of uh, Harding's life. He died on a trip uh, to Alaska. He died on the way back, supposedly, but uh, we wanted to reimagine it as sort of what if he went to Alaska and discovered there was an evil plot by the Arctic animals to take over the United States. And so he decides to fight them with the help of Calvin Coolidge and a young a native Alaskan woman who is a sort of libertarian entrepreneur. And basically they figure out that the animals are trying to take over the world. So the Republicans hatch a scheme to destroy the environment, to destroy the animals, so that they can save the world. So the reason the Republicans are trying to destroy the environment <laughs> is to save us from the animals. Sure, of course. You know, why? I mean, why else would they do it? Naturally. You got to know when to stop. You got to stop like where Act 2 starts so that people have a reason to listen in. You gave away everything. It's not. It's about, about the journey. It's about the uh, destination. That makes no sense. Absolutely. So it's a musical about that. So I was writing that and I was like, who could write a musical about Warren G. Harding fighting a walrus? So I was like, Matt. Of course. Yeah, it's me. And he did. And we threw together a whole demo of it. I mean, Matt recorded uh, demos of all the songs, including um, That Mysterious Goiter in Ode to Alaska. Rising there proud and erect A magnificent goiter on Canada's neck Aching to be taken in probe That mysterious goiter songs about Harding and Coolidge and there's a fight with a bear a lot of bears actually in that fight yeah and so you know then we did a little informal reading and then like with most theater things no one was interested and so we're like let's do something else but what should we do let's do a podcast and so uh we moved over from that to that but if you're a a crazy rich weirdo who wants to finance a giant Broadway musical about Warren G Harding Please mail all your money to us. Oh, hey, Marcus. Hey, Marcus. Oh, Marcus is here. Hello, Marcus. Hey, 
I'm so sorry about that, guys. I was trapped on a subway. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It is. Ah, oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is a it is a pleasure to have you here. Ah, oh, thank you. Marcus, you have arrived at a convenient time because uh, I have come to my question for you, uh, which follows actually quite naturally. So we were talking about how Jonathan and Matt first met, uh, and I'm curious how you ended up joining the team. Rachel Flynn, who was in season one and also in season two, uh, her first episode that she's in actually premiered today, is also the host of another podcast that uh, I work on called At the Table, a play reading series. And I'm pretty sure that she, it was Rachel who passed my name along to Matt and Jonathan. Is that right, guys? Was It was Rachel, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was. And uh, Matt called me and, and pitched the show to me and <laughs> it was instantly beyond stoked to get to jump into this crazy world. So I joined for season, I joined for season two. I, I was not the engineer on season one, which is also a, a really interesting uh place to kind of be joining as I get to kind of do all the all the fun things that an engineer gets to do and none of the like figuring out how to sort of make it all work because it's already clearly working so well. How do you Marcus, how do you match the tone of the show? Like coming in in the the beginning of season 2, how do you how do you match the tone of the show with your design? If Matt and Jonathan say, "Okay, give us a smother ray or we want a quilt bomb." How do you go about deciding what that sounds like? Two ways. Um, one is that I spent a lot of time listening to the first season. So I think from my perspective, you know, I did my homework and I think I, I kind of have a sense for what the sound effect should sound like. And then also we have a really awesome sound designer that we're working with who gave us some great bass sound effects to work with. So a lot of that stuff I didn't have to worry about. And then the stuff that I am worrying about, you know, it's a lot of thinking about the tone of the show. And I've been, you know, now living in the tone of the show since December when we started recording it. And then even before that, when I was doing research and checking out season one. So it's a sort of a vibe that you kind of bathe yourself in. And then, you know, hopefully everything that then comes out after that point is more or less, you know, in, in the world of the show. And, you know, obviously sometimes, you know, there'll be a sound effect and, and I'll send, you know, a version of the mix and everyone's like, what the hell is that? But for the most part, I, I feel like we have a pretty good back and forth, you know, where I think, you know, the the amount of times where we're sending stuff back and forth is becoming less and less, which is makes everybody happy. Yeah, I've noticed that actually that it's I've been really happy about that it was, you know, like uh, the first episode, you know, there's like six mixes of it. And then episode yeah. three, there's been like three mixes. Yeah, you you send us stuff. I, I was joking with my wife, Mel, that like, uh, you've learned all our insanity like to the most most extent like you know like to because you like you know as an engineer you probably want to get it 50 percent of the way there and then you send it for notes and your 50 percent and our 50 percent are like different so like you send it to us and you're like does this work is this in the ballpark and we're like oh my god and like sending you like 30 notes and then you're like that they're insane they need these six things to be done and it's like it's an easy switch i appreciate us we learn each other's languages it's great Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. We have a really fun Slack channel is <laughs> what it really comes down to. And he deals with when we both give conflicting notes to each other, too. I don't read your notes. I, I don't know. I don't know. But like, because we'll give a note and I'll give a note and, and they'll be in direct conflict with each other. Matt's note and my note. And then somehow Marcus figures out how to 
That hasn't happened that much. I just assume that Marcus times. knows that my notes are the real notes and your notes are like that other Bible that they don't allow anymore. Yeah, the good one. No, the, the, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> going to burn you at the stake someday. The Gnostic Gospels? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, the Gnostic. The Gospel of Judas or whatever. I just put all my notes in a jar and hide them in a, in a cliff for a shepherd to find a thousand years later. It's a sound way of, of filing things. <laughs> I don't know why everyone's so up in arms about it. It feels to me like this season is taking a bit more of an epic rock opera approach than the first season. Uh, I guess my question is, number two, do you think that's an accurate take? And number two, if it is, who would you list as your rock opera influences? Uh, I didn't know. Yeah, is it, is it rock opera? I guess I don't listen to a lot of rock opera, so I wouldn't know. Matt is like wonderfully ignorant about musicals, which is sort of great. <laughs> Um, which I whoops. I think it's really good because you're not then trapped in a box of what a musical is or what what music does in a theatrical sense. You think much bigger and more interestingly. I think than just being like, oh, this is this kind of thing, and then the plot moves this way in a musical. And so, because a lot of musicals are very structured, they're very constructed in the kind of the same way. And and when you know that sort of structure, you can really see it in them. Whereas Matt is much freer, I think, to explore lots of different genres. And ways, and I think part of it with this season, we want to consciously do something different than we did in the first season. The first season sort of is very loosely a murder mystery, and this one is more sort of epic quest structure. So I think the rock opera sense might come in in the sense of like how this is more of a journey quest. Yeah. And you know, I've been sort of influenced by rock operas. I was also very into like Rocky Horror when I was a teenager, and like The Who. And sort of prog rock also, like also that sort of Wagnerian quest sort of stories. And with the music, I, I try to let Matt have as much freedom as possible. I'll, I'll try to give him some idea lyrics or I'll, or I'll kind of write out a note of like, the song should at least try to get across these ideas. But I feel like in our collaborative process, we try to be as open with each other to explore and really chase our passions for what really interests and influences us and just go with anything. There's just something so prog rocky, and I mean this in from the bottom of my basement uncle heart. There's like something so beautiful about like a mad emperor, like god emperor cackling, like with like a <laughs> lightning riven sky behind him at the top of his immense imperial ziggurat, right? Like the the great fuzzy <laughs> pyramid of Fuzzo. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is this is this is opening up endorphin channels I didn't know existed in me. <laughs> I'm glad, man. That's awesome. <laughs> There's this moment in episode one of Days of Future Fuzz where Jared Lofton, who plays Fuzzo, I feel like approaches this really good Billy Corgan impression <laughs> when he sings Maybe the Credits Should Have Rolled. Yeah. And actually throughout that entire stanza, because he's kind of doing this like breathy thing. Was that intentional or was that just something that you arrived at by chance? Yeah, no. Uh, that's a mixture of him asking me to move it down just so he didn't have to go to falsetto <laughs> there. So it's like right at the top of where he is and stuff. And then also we have a, a our fourth member of our team is a guy named Will. And uh, I think he did that session, unless I'm taking something away from Marcus here. I think I did, Jared, but <laughs> oh, more. never mind. Well, Will's great, but well, Marcus, uh, I I remember the song at least. Marcus was talking him through some of that stuff, and it really it brought out a good performance. I mean, Jared's the man. Yeah, he's he's so talented. Yeah, it's so awesome to give him like to have him have the role he has this season. After kind of you don't think that much of him at the start of last season, but yeah. No, I love that's a, I'm glad you like that song. I mean, the, the first song of the season is definitely very it's meant to be a little prog rocky. 
but uh, I'm glad you you found a you found a thread. I definitely feel like um, I look back at season one, which I have not gone back to listen to really. But like when I think about the music from it, I I kind of have a question mark above my head, like a cartoon character. Like I don't understand what I was trying to do because I definitely I definitely feel like over this last summer when we were writing this season, it felt like I just understood what the show was finally or something. Not that I felt like I didn't in the first season, but it was like a door opened and I was like, oh, it just needs to live in this world. So maybe it is prog rock and I just don't know it. I just think because it it bears like saying out loud, like how many songs did you write for this season? This season? Yeah. Uh, It's got to be 60 or more, not including the ones that got written and thrown out. Yeah. Wow. But they're not very good. So, I mean, you know, you save a lot of time. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously, uh, doing things poorly. I got to tell you, I got to recommend it. It's a great way to get through your day. Sure. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how how did you divide up the work for writing? Would you say, is it an even split between Jonathan on book and Matt on music and lyrics? Or is it is it more porous? Do you help out with both? How does it work? I mean, it all starts with Jonathan. I'd say 50-50, but I usually, I feel like the person who does less work usually agrees to that. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah 50 50 sounds right sure i did 50 percent of the work jonathan what do you what do you think oh uh, yeah i mean it's i basically will write a draft of it and matt will give me notes and we'll work on it i mean he's been really great about helping with the script and then you know all the music and orchestration and all that i mean that's all him and it's an amazing amount of work and it's uh super difficult and and i'm always impressed and i think he's really stepped up his game orchestration wise this season i think that's also what you're noticing is just like the layers in it yeah have just increased exponentially so agree oh thanks man amazing so i I think you know and we go back and we go back and forth like he'll give me demos of the songs and i'll say oh can we work this idea in or like yeah sometimes there'll be like a reference i'm like that's not 100 percent exactly story-wise right there like i'm very (laughs) like obsessive about like story details and and matt was good too i mean i mean matt was great about really with the first draft looking at and saying you know i want to really strengthen uh fuzzo's arc and really look at that. And I feel like his songs also just help give a lot of the depth of the show and really shape it. And, you know, again, it's hard to try to figure out like percentages or numbers or anything like that about who does what or what's important or what, you know, it's just, it's what, it's what it is because of how we work and, and how we respect each other and, and how well we work as a team, I think. So it's really like not easy necessarily to figure out where one thing ends and another thing begins. Totally. I mean, John makes the world. He makes the wave. And I get to like I, that. My feeling is, is I get to like ride the wave like I get to this is a surfing metaphor. So if you could imagine um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing some sort of uh, like one piece uh, sleeveless sort of um, sunny, sunny out. And um, mm-hmm. Jonathan is manifested as a giant like kind of um, one of those tube shaped waves, you know, and I'm I uh, I think the term I think I'm hanging some sort of ten within it, and yeah. So hanging at least a digit off of like a giant beardy wave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. I mean, it's just it's easy. It feels very easy working with Jonathan. I mean, sometimes we're we're specific about like written by Jonathan, music by Matt, or something. But a lot of times, I feel like it's just created by and then our our names. Um, and I've never really gotten that in any other work I've done or felt that it was like necessary, but it, it feels really nice. It feels really cool. My, my voice just broke slightly because I was emotionally into what I was saying. I mean, that sounds like a really rewarding collaboration. It is. Yeah. yeah. And also you have to give credit to, to Marcus and Will and all the actors too, and everyone who comes in, you know, it's all, what's so great about 
like theater and, and audio drama and all is it is a collaborative medium and everyone brings their talent and their passion to it and their sensibility too. And that's part of why it works so well too is because Marcus and Will have, again, I think a sensibility that really meshes well with us. And, and, Absolutely. and we brought in actors who we trusted and who trust us and are willing to jump into this world and just go crazy and have fun. And sometimes I'm in the room directing, sometimes Matt, sometimes both of us. Sometimes one of us will run into the room with an idea for a take or something. So, you know, it's it's the whole it's all it's a whole process from first draft to the putting the thing up on SoundCloud. Yeah. So, Jonathan, I want I want to go back to something that Matt was referencing earlier when he was talking about the the level of detail that you bring to scripts. And especially after a second and a third listen, I've really come to appreciate the depth of the world building and the foreshadowing placed throughout the first season. You know, the first time I listened, the Hampire Wareham sequence seemed to come out of nowhere. <laughs> but the next time I listened, I, I realized that Hampires got mentioned earlier in the show. And I'm I'm curious, how do you approach this kind of intense, involved, and self-contained lore? Uh, a lot of it is just, you know, again, writing things that are from the history of what I've been interested in and sort of being a nerdy, geeky kid and just sort of collecting all those things and ideas and pieces of things and just keeping them in a bag and taking them and then saying like, well, let's lay all this out. And then, you know, a lot of that too is really being strong on the rewrites and saying, what can we layer in on this? What can we go deeper on? What can we seed earlier and looking back and really, you know, viewing it as a sort of a whole piece. And sometimes that comes out from who knows where I know with like the song 34 reasons, Matt put in a line about the bone in the phone booth, which he did, was just kind of a throw off line. I was like, I love that. Let's incorporate this bone into the show and it sort of takes on an important role <laughs> later on. And and that was something we just discovered and we went back and with the hampires, with other things, we see stuff in season one that's going to pay off in future episodes of uh, season two and beyond even. Yeah. I outlined a lot of it um, and really thought ahead and really was like, because I, I really want to make the world work. Because if you're going to make a crazy world, you have to ground it with certain rules because if anything can really happen, then it just becomes just anything and, and it sort of loses its power. But it can be a crazy world and they can follow crazy rules, but they have to have those rules and they have to you know, be consistent. And I don't want to just throw out something you know, in episode 12 that just sort of saves the day, but we've never referenced before. And all of a sudden it's just sort of a deus ex machina out of nowhere. So you know, world building is really important to me. I like when things connect and sort of go with repeat viewings or listings in this case. And then I explored that more with Brushtown stories over the off season of being able to just even fill out the world even more and just really play at the world and really set it up. And then the fun thing was to create this giant world and then basically blow it up at the start of season two by making it all go to fuzz <laughs> and completely change, change the world. So it's fun and hopefully it's rewarding for people who want to just keep listening and get really invested in it because my favorite things growing up were the things I could read over and over, watch over and over and, and discover new things every time I went back. And, you know, no one's going to care about your work as much as you. And if you don't put in the work and the care for it, I don't know how you expect other people to care about it. What What have you learned from the production of the first season that you're applying to the second season? <sighs> no Foley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Scratch that. Take that out. Don't don't put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do you mean? We did less live Foley and more. Well, I, we run a sound designer. That was a big thing just to change the workload of just 
letting us focus more, especially for Matt being able to focus on the orchestrations oh, thank God, and yeah. doing that music instead of us wearing shoes on our hands, you know, clopping around. That was like the last two months of work before season one came out was just us on the floor with squeaky toys or our hands inside, like women's shoes clopping around on like the floor this year. Yeah, it was a lot easier. Yeah, I think we learned a little more about hopefully time management in some way and being respectful of actors' times and trying to figure out how much time we actually need actors for and just being communicative and talking. And I mean, for writing-wise, I probably realized what a little better, like what needs to be said and what doesn't and what can be done in an audio medium that is different than writing for the stage or writing for a film. Or And it's still the learning process and it's still, but but not limiting ourselves too. I think we realized that with this, we can make a giant world because, again, it's it's all audio-based, so we don't have to worry about like a set budget or costumes or those sort of things. We can really make this big, epic world, and that is hard sometimes, and it is sometimes you write a, a stage direction, you write a sound effect direction in there, and then you're like, oh, now we actually have to do this. We actually have to try to create a quote bomb, or we have to create something. <laughs> so, But it's, you know, it's the fun of it. It's the joy, the discoveries in that. So, I don't know, Matt, what did you learn? Anything about music? I mean, yeah, I mean, just generally what I said earlier, just it's it's for some reason something clicked last summer. And I don't know. I don't personally feel like the music is uh, taking any sort of jump ahead in quality. But uh, I definitely know better, like what the world of music is. It feels like it just, uh, you know, I can read what he's put on the page and, and I know what the song is going to sound like. You know, I don't feel like I'm grasping for some sort of parody or something out of the blue. I, and I like that. I mean, I don't think I've ever had that where I've been working on a world and all of a sudden the I know the sound of the world perfectly. Yeah, I think we changed some stuff technically on the music end that I think is kind of cool. Oh yeah. What did you change? With with what Will is doing. Just it, we I, we just kind of like I don't want to say up cuz I think last season sounded really really well, but we're we got we're getting a little more into detail with how the music is produced and Will is, is ridiculously well-eared, if that makes sense. And and he hears stuff like in ways that nobody else I know does. And uh, what he's been doing, mixing the music, is just fabulous. It's bringing stuff to life in such a thoughtful and organic way. It's It's been really cool to listen to those mixes come in. Yeah. I, I, year one, I was mixing the channels on my own and then sending them to our producer who was just putting them in, kind of doing a basic master on them. And now I send the the project files to Will and he literally gives him like the studio treatment. He separates everything and I mean, he moves stuff around. I mean, he has a real ear for it. I mean, he's the orchestrations. I mean, I think I'm doing a better job, but I think a lot of it sounds better because of all the work <laughs> he's doing. Like he just he lifts things. He, he knows when things need to be heard and he moves them around. And he's, he's fantastic. Got a great ear. I've, I've found that with Will, like having he's mixed my own music and stuff before that he frequently knows your music better than you do (laughs) like here's things that that you would never hear and you get the mixes back and it's like oh that's what the song is that's cool no but i feel that way about you marcus too i I mean i'm i always think about like first day or two when we were working together and you were really quiet now i just we hadn't really worked together we'd had like three conversations before we were in the studio together (laughs) and then we did like three takes of something and uh, you were just kind of moving through. And I was like, OK, I don't know if he's really is he listening? And then I remember one take just happened and I wasn't necessarily happy with it, but I didn't know what to say. And then you just push pause and you were like, what if? And it was just like all of a sudden became abundantly clear that you have that ear, that you're listening 
kind of passively to everything, these like thousands of hours of recordings. And you just know when it's time to say the one or two things to get the thing where it needs to be. It's, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's that podcast here, that sweet, sweet podcast here. Uh, that's very appreciated. <laughs> David's got it. Marcus got it. <laughs> Everybody wants it. Hey. Like I said earlier, like you guys established such a strong first season that it was really easy to listen to what was being done in the studio and like kind of hopefully understand what needed to happen then to like make it a reality as we were recording season two. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think the, the one of the best things is as we're like editing, we'll find these like takes that are totally wrong, but so totally fun <laughs> and hear, you know, side conversations in between takes that like I'm remembering that we had or ones that I wasn't in the room for. And I'm like, oh, my God, they said that about me. That's so rude. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, whatever else. But yeah, it's such a fun collaboration. Like even that first meeting that we had, you came into the meeting with thoughts and ideas based on what you had done in season one that really informed like the decisions that me and Will, you know, sort of pushed as we started our process. So it's been, it's cool. <laughs> it's been awesome, man. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk briefly about Braceletta, the girl with the braces on her teeth and legs. Because I think I think there's a lot going on with her. She drives a lot of the season one plot. She has agency and sexuality. And she's ridiculous in the way that all the other characters are ridiculous. But I'm curious about that first song that she has, Crooked, right? Playing on the notion that her disability and the aimlessness of her life were intertwined. Uh, I want you to just like expand on what you were aiming for with that and like walking walking the balance between broadness and inclusivity. The the point of that song or the point of her the beginning of her storyline there with that song is is not to poke fun in any way. It's it's that she thought there was something wrong with her. And so she sought out uh, uh, an answer, you know, an inclusiveness from a TV show and from the, the family that ran that TV show. And they used her. They used her terribly, you know, and, and there was really nothing wrong with her. She's a, a beautiful, incredible person. And she just got very much used by these people. Yeah, I mean, it's about, too, I think how cults can exploit people and they find what people don't like about themselves or what they what they view as flaws and how they exploit that to further indoctrinate them and to further try to quote unquote fix them or to to use them for their goals. And I think, you know, her story is realizing that and how much she's been abused by this family and by this this cult and how her disability has been sort of used against her. So I was exploring that, I think, and exploring someone who's sort of given into this cult, who was an outsider from that cult originally, because a lot of the cult is sort of interior from the town that they're from, and what that means to her personality and to her life that she's all of a sudden devoted to this thing. And then as the story progresses, the thing that she believed in sort of unravels and she questions uh, her choices and if she was ever really broken at all. And I think that's sort of what the reprise of Crooked is in episode uh, nine and sort of episode nine being sort of about flashbacks to her and her dealing with what has become of her and the family and her place in it and the supposed prophecy. And it's a comedy. So, uh. And it's a comedy. <laughs> da 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 da. <laughs> I was so, speaking of uh, it's a comedy, I was so captivated by that little snippet of the Clowny Brown show in episode six. It was it was as if like Woody Guthrie decided to become Mr. Rogers and it just <laughs> struck this like secret socialist chord in my heart. I was like, yes. Uh, will, will we ever see prequel content with Clowny Brown? 
and Tiger Tiger Fellow Traveler and <laughs> Mix Canary. Or what was it? What, what's the name of the not? M- mixed Jitters. Mixed Jitters. The canary that knows gender isn't binary. Yes. Um, I don't know. I mean, there is the one Brushtown story from the actress who played the cow. Right. And it's sort of her looking back on it. And that sort of delves into a little bit of the background of her and uh, Connie Brown and how she got involved in the show. And, I mean, that's sort of what Brushdown Stories is for, so we could do a little bit of sideways stuff. But I think we also like to sort of keep some mystery and some, you know, openness to the world building and let people connect their own pieces, too. I mean, we don't want to put every single breadcrumb that's there. I think, you know, people can read between the lines and people can sort of argue exactly what happened or how it is. And, I mean, who knows? When we're desperate and we need to, we can always <laughs> go go back and mine what we have and we're all out of ideas. You know, that's always a good uh, way to go, David. Back. If you're telling us it's going to make money, we'll do it. I mean, just let us know. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Nothing, nothing sells like socialism, boys. There you go. But no, to, to, John, to, to go back to what you were saying, uh, I, I talk about world building with my buddy Dave all the time, and his phrase for what great world building does is that it kind of pushes back the horizon of the world that it kind of exposes this tantalizing city off in the distance that you might only ever get like a glimpse of, but you know it's there. And that was really the feeling that I got from that little flashback. Um, really, the purpose of my question is to ask, how how do you feel that your politics manifest in the show? Other than that, you know, explicit bit there. I mean, I think it's there because if I'm going to be writing, I'm writing from my point of view regardless of what I'm saying. So I think that comes through just naturally. And I think, you know, politically, I think all of us, uh, Matt, Marcus, and I are sort of in the similar sort of area of it. I mean, we might have some shades of difference here and there, of course, but I think it comes through. And I think, you know, too, with with art, you know, people can twist art any way they want on every side. And you can see that about how people claim certain things and and they can make of it what they want or not. And, And even once it's out there in the world. It's not sort of like Brechtian teaching theater where it's like, this is the point. I will now talk directly to the audience and explain to them what's wrong about this part of society. It's, it is more just an art piece and, and it can be interpreted and changed. I mean, I have my politics and I try to, you know, and it will definitely inform my worldview. It'll inform my philosophy, which informs the philosophy of, you know, the journey of the characters of who the characters are. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I usually like to give every character I write one belief that I disagree with just to um, help me write them. That's just sort of like a writing trick I use and not necessarily even something that will ever even necessarily come up or be there, but it's just something, a way of like informing an idea because I don't want every character also just to be like a parrot echo chamber for what I believe too. And and it is sometimes about embracing and loving those people who you disagree with also, whether they're family members or friends or whatever, and trying to understand where they're coming from, even if you disagree with them, even if you don't like what they believe in, but at the end of the day, they're still, you know, human beings. So sometimes writing characters who you disagree with is an interesting way to do that, or just a way for you to like ground them as being different from other characters. But it's definitely something that I think informs it. I don't know how it works for Matt musically. I'll, I, <laughs> I tried to follow that up. That was beautiful, Jonathan. I mean, all I know is that, uh, I think it was like right after the election last year that I had to write Clown Panic or something. Uh huh. That's the one where it's like most baldly on its face. But I think generally it's Jonathan creates this world where I think concerns and questions about our world are very much alive in this fictional world. And so it's easy to draw on things, both uh, political and emotional that affect me 
in the music. Absolutely. Um, John, I have a question for you. Uh, I read on your website that in the play Luck of the Ibis, there is a being called the Urshrimp. What entices you about the idea of these primordial beings, right? From Urshrimp to Urtooth to Elder Fuzz, what what appeals to you about these ancient godlike creatures? Um, I think it's about, I mean, for me, it's being interested in history and sort of the history of religion and the history of faith and belief and where that comes from. And um, I sort of have a very liberal Jewish education. And I even took courses where, like, you know, they were taught, like, how the Abrahamic God came about. And it was sort of these local religions that would then fight with the other religions. And then God wasn't sort of this omnipresent thing. It was sort of this localized deity or ideas about um, irrational versus irrational God or Zoroastrian gods. And, and just the idea of where belief comes from and how it permeates. But also, I think, going into sort of that Lovecraftian or or that sort of Hellboy mythology too, of just how all these things reconcile within our world, you know, while still being personally very um, sort of a skeptic and a non-believer, but yet how belief still shapes us and shapes our myths and legends and sort of also creating a world. Well, what if you create a world where all this stuff was true and how does that affect the ideas of that world or how, you know, how those relationships and sort of work within each other and sort of double back on each other. And sort of using that as, as a way to examine things and the idea of sort of that first thing, that earth thing, going back to sort of where did this all begin? Where did it all start? And sort of unspooling it from there. And again, I think it ties into also world building. And it's a lot of writing is about manifesting your personal interests and your personal manias and using that as an outlet for you to sort of ask questions. Because I think this the best writing doesn't answer questions and it asks questions. And so a lot of it too is me asking questions of of the universe, of of ourselves, of myself, and just playing with that and what sort of has inspired and interested me and my writing. This is sort of a sidebar question about the the Brushtown bootleg with the toothstronauts with the that's your banana, you brush your teeth with it song. <laughs> there was something about that, and I can't I can't put a finger on exactly why, maybe just because of the like didacticism of the Toothstronaut like bit, it felt like, I, I mean, I know this is what like the, the, the Sunshine Hour is supposed to be, um, but it, it kind of felt like this weird dispatch from like an evangelical Christian public access channel, like some sort of nightmare veggie tales thing in in its in its particular inane silliness that then led to like genocide was that was that specific bit like based on anything in particular or am i just pulling things out of my butt left and right here i mean i i wrote that one i i was kind of just we were kind of spitballing i mean uh i guess did you you invented toothstronauts right jonathan yeah i think we refer we referenced them in uh 34 reasons i think i know I, yeah I, yeah i wrote it into 34 reasons but i think you you mentioned it before that or something i think when we we're working on that song you were like write me a list of reasons and i think that was one of them yes that was it that was it and then i was just thinking about i mean i've always thought of the show as kind of like and i guess you know my politics also might be slightly shaped by this too just like growing up on like muppets and stuff you know in the muppet show and just thinking about like a show like that, like you could have, I mean, like I was, it was an idiot kid. Like you could have slipped any sort of politic or religion in there. And I just would have eaten it up probably pretty normally. 
But like thinking about that when we were when I was trying to write that, we were, I mean, we were just trying to come up with stuff that would fit in between uh, kind of in these these break weeks. And so we thought that was a song I wrote. And then it was like, well, this song makes no sense without a scene around it. So I just kind of called back on like Muppet Show, like all the times when they would like send it up to, you know, Kermit the Frog on the moon or whatever. I don't know. I mean, again, it's like I feel like I'm riding Jonathan's wave like he wrote this world and it's like that sort of just kind of stream of consciousness came out of me because it it's exactly what you described it as. I mean, nothing is this black and white with our show, but like, I mean, I think you can find parallels between evangelical sort of propaganda, finding ways to get these these ideas into kids. Which I think they say in the show. I mean, you know, it's trying to get everybody to brush their tooth particles. Yeah. And I think it's also like sort of Victorian colonialism in that song, too. The Again, the idea of like encountering these people and being like, no, this is the way we do it. And that's not how we do it. Yeah. Mm, thank you. He- here's here's one that I just sort of popped in at the end. Um, why teeth? Why not? <laughs> sure. <laughs> was, there some, was there something, Jonathan, was there something particular about like teeth being there's a there's a baby d song called teeth are the only bones that show um i think about that every time i look at someone's mouth now wow like is there is there anything that's like particularly uncanny about about teeth that made you want to go for it in that way um i think teeth are teeth are weird i mean we lose them and then get new ones that's kind of weird. And there's ones that come in really late. But only once. Only once. Not like a shark where you get like endless amount. And then, you know, I think too, the way people are scared of dentists and the idea of the idea of your mouth and just how weird the mouth is. There's just a, a hole that goes into inside your body. I mean, we play with the idea of the earth tooth. And I think that that will um, come back also as the show goes on uh, to its eventual end. So, I mean... It also just seems like sort of a thing. If you're going to pick something on the body to worship, it's a weird choice. It's a small, you know, such a seemingly inconsequential thing, but also does a lot. And um, yeah, teeth. I mean, it's also a fun word to to, to chant, and uh, it's just fun to play with. Teeth, teeth. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you just something kind of comes in your head, and you don't fully understand why it's there, but you just kind of embrace it. And sometimes you can say like, I don't really know exactly why teeth but it was also exactly the right choice cool nice it was it is it is the right choice it is i i agree no one should forget that <laughs> i would not dare uh this has been this has been really wonderful thank you thanks man yeah david you're amazing thank you so much for having us of course well folks i hope you had as much fun as i did with that interview matt marcus and jonathan come on back anytime Before we get to the credits and the outro, I want to reiterate how much I love Baby D's 2008 album Safe Inside the Day off of Drag City. I just love Baby D as a lyricist. That was the teeth are the only bones that show song that I was referencing in the interview. Let me hit you with the first stanza of that song, teeth are the only bones that show. I'm looking out from eyes that roll back white, and I talk in tongues of blood and bite. And the only song I know is the calling of a crow and teeth are the only bones that show. Teeth are the only bones that show. If you want to support the wonderful work that these folks do, direct your computer machines to patreon.com slash podmusical and throw them a buck or 15. And while you're there, give us a try as well. We're also on Patreon under the name, you guessed it, Radio Drama Revival. 
For a dollar a month, you can hear episodes just like this one early and get access to our Discord channel, where, as promised previously, I have begun running weekly rounds of Weirdo David Jeopardy. Here's a few sample categories from a recent game. Hats, basil, kinds of ham, and abutments, a category which, as you may have surmised, is all about butts. So if that kind of trivial perversion appeals to you, you sick little creature, or if you'd like to see the sorts of hijinks and behind-the-scenes delights that we dole out to higher-dollar backers, head on over and subscribe. Patreon.com slash Revival. If we reach our first Patreon goal, you'll hear an entire episode hosted by my puppet pal, Rocco the Mole. Say hi, Rocco. Hi, Rocco. That's very cute, Rocco. Thanks. I pride myself on it. Go on, pet the fur. Oh, he's so soft. I condition. I do, in fact, actually have this puppet. I intend to start using him in videos and things, so come aboard and help us out at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Yeah. Now, it's time for me to embrace the fuzz and read some credits. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux, the pharaoh of fuzz. He's stuffed with stuff, won't take your guff. He's a tough little fluff and he's had enough. Our interview's producer is Eli McElveen, the Duke of Duvets. He rules over his plushy principality with a cuddly fist and a comfy glove. Our associate producer is Sean Howard, the vizier of Velvet. He advises me in my time of need, which is always, Sean, come here. I need you. It is an urgent fuzz matter. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, the woolen witch queens of the West Country, who weave their wicked wefts and warp the very fabric of reality. Our social media manager is James Oliva, the justice of the piece of fleece, who ensures that when it's time to deliver retribution, it comes down. Our executive producer is the Lord of Linen, the Cottony King, the Titan of Tensel, the Don of Chiffon, the Last of the Mohairkins, the Dean of Gabardine, the Spartan of Tartan, Boss Tweed himself, Fred Greenhouse, my friend and yours. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Say goodnight, Rocco. Goodnight, Rocco.